As if last week wasn't strange enough, we're going to talk about child sacrifice this morning. Look, I'm following the stuff that Isaiah is talking about. So we had this is a he's going through some very some very dark themes, talking about you know the the sort of uh, monstrous pagan cultures at the edge of the world. Um, now he's going to talk about the evil that the Israelite leaders have let in to their community. What chapter are we in? Uh, it's on your page right in front of you, 57. Yeah. Um, so, I, if you would, because I know you do this sometimes, if you would keep the Septuagint handy, because... Is this ESV? It's ESV, yes. This chapter uh, varies from the Septuagint in some interesting ways. Um It's a, it's, it's a very difficult chapter, and I think it was probably very difficult to translate. Um, it opens up with this, this pair of verses that doesn't even seem to fit with the whole rest of the chapter, um, or even with what comes before it. Um, I think I've figured out a way to tie it to the rest of the chapter, but I'll be honest, it seems like kind of a strange aside. So let's read these first couple verses and talk about it for a second. Um, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who walk in their uprightness. At first, it sounds like a, a terrible, tragic thing, that the, the righteous people are, are killed, and experience death, and experience... Um, the the horrors of exile, but then it all it seems to flip on itself, and it almost makes it sound like God taking them out as a mercy, because they're spared from the rest of the tribulations that are about to befall the earth. Um, I don't really know what to say about it other than that. I mean, it sounds like he is. He is just presenting us with the horrors of death, and they it it's, it falls on the the good and the and the evil alike. And um, on the one hand, this is a terrible thing, but on the other hand, sometimes there's a blessing in being removed from the picture, so to speak. And there is a peace that God can give His people through death. Now, it's not for nothing that in the Orthodox tradition, they don't say that the saints who have died are dead. They say they're reposed. They're in a state of rest. I think that's significant for what we're talking about. They're just asleep. They're sleeping. While the nations rage, you know, quiet, you know in the background, the saints are quietly sleeping, waiting for Christ to come back. So, talk to me about that when somebody dies. Do you speak of them in the past tense? You know, she was a wonderful person. Or she is. She still is. 
God is the God is the God of the living, not the dead. That's right. There's an example of what you're talking about with Josiah, uh, the best king, a great reformer king, um, best king that the southern kingdom had, you know, since ever since the split, and it was prophesied that he would die in peace. But he actually died in battle. He went to war against the Egyptians and he was killed. And very soon afterwards, the whole kingdom crumbled and fell to Babylon. So he did die in peace. He didn't. He was not there. He was still a young man. He was not there in place when the time came for the Babylonian captivity. So that, that is not necessarily the worst thing. One of the things I like about this verse uh, is how it talks about that devout men are taken away, righteous perish, and yet and no one understands. It's like you know, it acknowledges that it makes no sense to us why the the good people die and bad people live, mm-hmm. and that's that's something people struggle with in the faith, and people struggle with it all the time. You know why? Why him of all people? You know, why her of all people? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and sometimes it's senseless deaths, it seems like. You know? uh, and this, this verse just kind of really, I think it really identifies with that thinking. And if anything, it should be a comfort to us that God gets what we're thinking you know, on that. And that, yeah, that happens. The scripture doesn't pull its punches. It doesn't pull its punches, but it also, it also gives us it also can, this is one of those cases where it tells us what we're thinking and what we're struggling with. Mm-hmm. And so it reminds us we're not struggling alone, maybe. Yes. I think there's just a reading I have. It seems like a, a presumption of it. But it seems like we're reading sort of a, like a response, like he's talking to a group of people. And like in verses 3 and 4, it feels like what it may be doing is like presuming a question of why do bad things happen to good people? Like, that's sort of like might be sort of the context of it. So then he goes into like, yes, sometimes that does happen. And then he goes to like the why are you that doesn't that's not an excuse for who you are. Well, the the context as we're about to see is pretty horrific. Um, the context is the idolatry that Israel has let in. And um, it's not just any old idolatry. It's it's uh, it, it's the worst of the worst. It is um, it's the kind of idolatry that comes straight from the demons. Um, it's, the, it's the idolatry that existed in Canaan before Israel took it over. Um, it's the idolatry that came from the giants, and um, it managed to survive in remnant form up until this point and now Israel has let it back in and um, so for them to for them to question why do why do uh, uh, bad things happen to good people Isaiah is about to turn it on its head and say uh, uh, you think you have any ground to stand on in asking that question Um, but you draw near Sons of the sorceress. Actually, before we read this, can someone look up Deuteronomy 6 for me? Scary. Uh, 
It's not as bad as last week. All right, just hold it handy. Uh, But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, seed of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the seed of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley, is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. All right, let's pause there for just a second. Um, Walton, if you would, read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The covenant words of Yahweh is what belongs on the doorpost. Um, in our house, uh, Angela has written uh, words of scripture like up and down the door frame leading into the kitchen. Like So every time she walks in the kitchen, she's literally like walking through the words of scripture. On a high and lofty mountain you've set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. If that wasn't enough, you put your memorial at the doorpost. You put it where God's words were supposed to be. Behind the door and the doorpost you've set your memorial, deserting me. You have uncovered your bed, you've gone up to it, you've made it wide, you've made a covenant for yourself with them. You've loved their bed, you've looked on nakedness. He's talking about spiritual adultery. He's talking about the adultery and the fornication that is idolatry. Loving anything other than God, putting anything above Him, is a, is a spiritual fornication. Um, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your invoice far off and sent even down to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. Listen to that. Sin is exhausting. Sin is wearying, and the addiction of sin wears you out. It 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 um it it it, it drains the strength from your body. And you didn't even get tired of it. it. You 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 looked within yourself for new strength. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Yeah. All right, I'm going to uh, go down a long rabbit trail with talking about journeying to the king. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. Um, it's talking about going to this, uh, this ruler and offering tributes that are supposed to be not given to this pagan king. Uh, we can at least say that. Um, so the question is, who is this king? And um, I'm going to play with this for a little bit. Um, I'm going to 
make the case, um, and this is just me talking, so take it for what it's worth. I'm going to make the case that this is a bad translation and that uh, instead of the word king, this is actually telling us what pagan god is being worshipped. It already said that it's a god who wants child sacrifice. Or is Bach. Yes. But that's the same word as king either way. <laughs> I don't have to go down the rabbit trail anymore. Walton just did it for me. All right, so the letters, the letters for... Uh, for ruler, and I'm going to be I'm going to be general with it because I think it the the vowels are what make it more specific. Help me if I'm I mean I'm a little outside of my depth here, but I think I'm on the right track. The, but the vowels were put in a lot later anyway. Vowels are put in later, and well, they, they're formalized later. They're formalized later. So the vowels are what distinguishes um, the details of this word. But generally speaking, M L K denotes ruler or principality. We'll say principality. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, uh, Malik, M-A-L, means angel. Melek, M-E-L, means king. Molek is a... um, is taking this word and combining it with the vowels for the word shame. You take the vowels from the word bolet... O and E, and you combine it with the ruler for king, and you have a shameful king. And this is this is God's word for the. We don't even know what this pagan god's name originally was. All we have is what Yahweh calls him. Yahweh calls him the shameful principality. This was the top of the Canaanite pantheon. Um, he was the. You can either call him uh, the god of the dead or the god of time. I think either one works. Um, and he was the god who demanded child sacrifice. Um, his his uh, his name, according to the Hebrew Bible, is Molech, and um, some say that he is alive and well in our culture today. Um, but in the original, it didn't have any vowels, right? Not written. Not not written. So this is actually. This is actually going to come up later. So Hebrew works different from English in that it is much more sparse in what is written. The vowels were spoken. They're understood. Mm-hmm. And everyone knew what was being talked about as it was written. Uh, so when it was written, whoever wrote it back then, they knew what it sounded like and they added the vowels. Exactly. So in all of these cases, the word has to do with principality, whether you're talking about angel, mm-hmm. king, ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, this specific shameful king which is God's title for him um, in all of these cases it has to do with the, the, the notion of principality or ruling force um, in Hebrew Walton helped me out here but in Hebrew the consonants are formalized and they are they're the, the scaffolding for what is written there is um, the, the vowel system they were called the, the vowels in Hebrew were called the mothers of reading, and they were intentionally uh, not included because for them it was, um, it was better to leave them sort of in the realm of, of, of mystery. There was an interplay between sort of the, the silent and the spoken in how Hebrew was written. This is a strange concept for us today because that's not how we think, but that's how they thought. 
This is actually going to matter later when we're talking about the name of Yahweh, which we're going to come to that later. Um, well, even in modern, yes. even in modern Hebrew, like a Hebrew newspaper or something like that, I mean, there are no Bibles in it. It's just the same. Yes. Just the consonants, and that's it. Yes. So they have to tell what the word is to They know, they know what the words are, but they're, they're just not written in the Bible. In the Hebrew like newspaper, in a... Yes. They use, you know, the same Hebrew characters as in the Hebrew Bible and all that. In English, we have a lot of silent vowels or silent oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That, that too, but in, in mm -hmm. Hebrew, yeah. they're just not written down. Yeah. But in their own. I kind of wish in English sometimes didn't. <laughs> 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 it's like the spelling of it is completely different than what you say. <laughs> now, for, for me to suggest, and, and hear me out, for me to suggest that we have a, a mistranslation here with calling it journeying to the king when really it should be journeying to, to Moloch, um, that is not to say that scripture has somehow fallen into error here no, because the consonants are what saying. were written. Yeah, the consonants saying. are you know, the divine words of scripture. That's not in question here at this point. What's in question is what vowels did they assume were being talked about, and when they went in and added the vowels, which well, ones should it have been? As people say, you know, translation is also interpretation. Yes. So, yes. Well, this, this Bible does use the word Moloch. Does it? Well, maybe it's right then. And it, it has a footnote, though, it says, yeah. or to the king. Um, I have another reason for thinking that this is about Moloch. Um, I already mentioned that it, it invoked child sacrifice. There's also... Um, an association with Pharaoh here at the end of this section where it said, you were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You hardened your heart. You strengthened your heart. This is kind of like what happens with the Pharaoh in the Exodus. Um, now, what happens in the Exodus is God sends the child-killing angel in a series of plagues. And what he's doing with each of the plagues is he's turning the gods against Egypt. He's letting Egypt fall in on itself, right? By showing his superiority over all of these pagan gods. He does this with the Nile River. They hold the Nile River sacred. I'm going to let the Nile River be their source of death, God says. He, want, he systematically turns the gods against Egypt. Why should the angel of death be any different? I, I think, and again, this is just me talking, but I think that when God sends the angel in the last plague, I think that's the same as all the other plagues where he's taking the principalities and gods who are his servants, by the way. He's taking these gods and turning them against their pagan worshipers. So I think we have in the Exodus story an example of Moloch being subject and subservient to Yahweh. I think we see that in the story. Now, we saw this back in Isaiah 6. If you recall, all the way back then when you had the vision where Isaiah sees God in glory, it's a vision of the heavens. Who is serving him in that vision? It's the dragons. It's the false gods. They're, they're his servants. They're his bellhops, as Walton would say. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is a consistent thing in Scripture that um, the dragons and the... Um, the, the pagan principalities are at the end of the day subject to Yahweh's rule. And he shows this time and time again. Well, we have to understand, and I think there is a, there is 
talks of constructs, construct of God, this building, but there's also a destructive side of God where he's destroying. Because in some ways you have to destroy this before you can build that. So, uh, and so it's hard, that's, that's the God that we have the most difficulty with. We can't quite grasp, especially in modern times, that we think God is so much love and he's just all this kind of stuff. We can't grasp him coming in and well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take what you just said and double down on it because I think you're onto something. And I'm gonna tie it with the rest of this passage. Um, it's not just destruction. God demands sacrifice. He demands that everything be subject to Him, right? And the old way of talking about that is sacrifice. Um, now, we can, we can say, you know, in 21st century Christianity um, that, you know, the sacrifice is accomplished in Christ, and that is true. But uh, Christ, and I'm going to be, I'm going to use my words carefully here, um, Christ did not sacrifice himself so that we don't have to make any sacrifices anymore. He sacrificed himself so that we can participate with him in sacrifice. Romans 12.1. Yeah. Well, all of Scripture. <laughs> all of Scripture. <laughs> yes. The, 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 the world runs on sacrifice. Um, well, it's everywhere you turn. But it's his way of sacrifice that we participate in. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, Suffering. Yes. So we were reading it in, uh, in Jesus bids you come and die. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, insert scripture after scripture after scripture. Um, death, I mean, it's just a fact of reality that death is what sustains the world. Down to the level of the cells, death is what sustains the world. Theologically, we understand that it is it is Christ slain before the foundation of the world that keeps the world running. Um, so this is just a spiritual law. This is just a principle of reality. Um, and you can call it the law of sacrifice, if you want to call it that. Um, what else to say about child sacrifice? Well, it's so shocking to me that, you know, some of the kings of Israel, the kings of Israel were in this kind of thing. I mean, they were sacrificing their children. Yeah. To Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's challenging for a lot of people. Um, in my, I did a deep dive on Moloch this week, trying to learn as much as I could. And what I came across were a lot of articles that questioned whether or not child sacrifice was even a thing that happened back then, because it's so shocking. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of modern scholarship that's. That I that I came across that suggested that, um, well, maybe maybe they were dedicating their children to God, but they weren't actually killing them. It's that's just a little too much. Uh, and now, in their defense, I'll give the devil his due here. In their defense, there are cases in Scripture where someone is dedicated to God, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they were killed. There's an example in Genesis of this, where someone makes a vow, and they say, "I'll dedicate my child to God." Um, doesn't necessarily mean that he killed his daughter. 
It could. It's Jephthah. It's yeah. Jephthah. Yeah. Jephthah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Oh, is it Judges? Yeah. Not in yeah. Genesis. Okay. So there are examples of this. However, however, one sixth of every child born last year was killed. One sixth. Point one seven percent of every child killed last year, or every child conceived last year was murdered. Yes, that's right. Seventeen percent. Yeah. All right. Tell me that Moloch isn't at work in the world today. All right. Now, child sacrifice is all, all sacrifice is making a bargain with the future. That's what sacrifice is. You're giving something up in the present in order to get something back from the future. Except for except for extreme circumstances. And we can account for those, but except for extreme circumstances, that's exactly what abortion is. It's giving up a child in order to uh, um, put off the future, in order to delay the responsibilities of adulthood. This is a harsh way of saying it, but it's the truth. Now, that is child sacrifice, right? And that is why earlier I said you can call Moloch the god of death or the god of time. Either one works because... This is how child sacrifice works. It, it, um, the way it's talked about in Isaiah may be shocking, but we experience it today. You know, China has had a one-child policy for a while. It's destroying their country. Yeah. yeah. That is the sacrifice of children. That's the sacrifice of children to an ideal, to a, to a, um, to a false god. So, I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of um, the way that these modern scholars do it. Talking about the ancient world like they're outside of the story. They're going to be saying people are going to be saying the exact same thing about us. Surely these people didn't kill one sixth of all of their children. Surely they didn't really do that. What sort of false god were they worshiping that they would sacrifice? Their children too. It's going to be shocking to uh, people a thousand years from now that we engaged in these kind of pagan practices, and they are pagan practices. You had something, Craig? Uh, well, I'll throw in first this whole transitioning fad now too is also destroying our children mm-hmm. and the yeah. children of the future. But um, 
in Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, there's a brilliant chapter comparing Carthage with Rome, you know, why Carthage failed yeah. and Rome succeeded, you know, the two pagan uh, uh, cultures. And uh, it, 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 his landing point is that Car Carthage did not care about their children. And part of it was they didn't, they didn't care about the future enough to support Hannibal uh, financially, you know, they, they just wanted their money to themselves. But also, um, he brings in child sacrifice, which apparently was, was part of the Carthaginian um, culture. The, Carth the Carthaginian culture came from the Phoenicians, so it was came from the Canaanites. Yeah, so, yeah. so the Western world is still informed by the Roman Empire. Carthage is, you know, just rubble. Yeah. Could you say then that Moloch really is another manifestation of the name of Satan? Or is he an underling of Satan? I'm not going to answer that right now. Um, <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not willing to go down that rabbit trail right now. Um, but but that, I recommend that chapter in The Everlasting Man because it's very easy to apply that to abortion. Yeah, so uh, the only, yeah, for sure. The only direct, and this is important for the next section that we're about to read, the only direct account, aside from Scripture, that we have of Moloch is that story from Rome of the, of the Carthage, Carthage. Yeah, the Carthage thing. Um, the god they worshipped, his name was Kronos, time. Okay. All right. Um, and it's the Saturn god that came from the Phoenicians from the land of Canaan. You know, their scholars are pretty sure that Kronos and Moloch are the same yeah. thing. Saturn, Saturn, Saturn. Yeah, ate his child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These stories are like this way for a reason. Yeah. Um, so when the Greeks took over everything, all these stories were sort of absorbed into Greek culture. Yeah. So within Greek culture, we have the preservation of this stuff. The only direct uh, story of Moloch that we have comes from comes from Carthage. The Canaanites didn't we don't have a direct Canaanite story about Moloch. That's actually that's significant for this next section, um, which we're going to read in just a minute. A couple other things on child sacrifice before we move on. Another example of modern child sacrifice that doesn't bother us is war. War is child sacrifice. It's sacrificing our children yeah. to an ideal, to the to the whims of the principality, to the whims of the ruler. Um, this is yet another example of child sacrifice. So we do have examples of this in our culture today. Um, it's not as uh, we, we shouldn't be as shocked by it as we are um, when Christianity takes over and redeems the world. These practices are not just done away with, they are transformed and turned and turned into a thing of glory. Explain what practices? All of them. Well, what exactly? well in this case child sacrifice. And I'm gonna I'm gonna explain what I mean by this. Well give 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 me a chance here to explain it. The vast majority vast majority of people coming into the faith throughout Christendom have been 
as children, baptized into the faith early on. Baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. Child dedication, baby dedication, infant baptism. These are, these are redeemed pictures of us taking our children and dedicating them to God, right? This is the redeemed version, right? Who was pleased to strike the sun? The father. And this is, this is why child sacrifice is uh, uh, abhorrent to God. Is the exclusive right of cross. Yep. And, and so, as you're saying, because baptism is a death and resurrection, in terms of what it symbolizes, that's sort of a sanctifying of the idea that we cult, that human culture sins and what they do. It, it, it's, it sanctifies that. It, it turns it into a wonderful thing. Is that kind of what you're saying? It, it takes the inevitability. Of human sacrifice and redeems it, and brings it into Christianity in a way that that exalts Christ. Gotcha. Sacrifice is inevitable, and what the cross does is it it redeems it, and it makes it into a thing that we can participate in. And and infant baptism, I'm saying, is an example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the Jews did that. The Jews did that, didn't they? I mean, they brought that to bring their first child. Um, yeah, not in the way I'm talking about, but I they know, did. But, but they were redeemed. Yeah. They were seeing the value of children. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, we, we could talk about circumcision, but yeah. Yeah. And this was all in place before the foundations of the world. Yes. This was established spiritually by God. Yeah. And so what we're actually seeing is child sacrifice and all this other horrible stuff is the powers and principalities trying to corrupt that. Right. Yes. Trying to destroy it. Yes. In, in, in our culture, it's, it's difficult for us to talk about um, the sacrifice of Christ as a kind of child sacrifice because that sounds so <clears throat> horrible to us. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can much more easily talk about it in terms of, well, Christ gave himself up for us. Mm-hmm. Christ sacrificed himself. It was a self-emptying, which is true. It was a self-emptying, but also God killed his son, which is, by definition, child sacrifice. He died on behalf of God the Father. Yes, yes. Um, So, you know, Christianity accounts for everything. Everything is accounted for in the story of Christianity. And all of this, um, you know, the, 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 the root systems of these pagan cultures are... Uh, are not just burned away when Christianity comes in, but they're taken and redeemed. This is what Christianity is is always in the business of doing. It's in the re- the business of redemption, but of the, taking everything and yeah. Go ahead. But, but to Greg's point, it, it, it's not the roots are pagan. The roots are Christian, and then the the sprouts, yes. for lack of a better term, yeah. are are pagan. Yes. Yeah. It's that's... getting back to the roots. Because we did, we did that with the calendar. Yeah. Days of the week. That's what we redeemed them. You know, they're all mm-hmm. named after maybe the Roman God. Yeah. Not maybe. They are named they after are Roman God. <laughs> so, there was a certain wise scribe in Portugal who thought that 
he was upset about the pagan names for the days of the week. Yeah. So he just invented first day, second day, third day. That's what makes it sounds like so something that a self-righteous Christian would try to do. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for uh, your edit there. Um, one more one more thought on this before we move on. Um, the celibacy of Christians is another form of child sacrifice. It, it's the sacrifice of the potential for children. Um, now, now, we talked last week about eunuchs for the kingdom. I'm not even going to go there. Let's just talk about as a young person trying to follow Christ, <coughs> avoiding premarital sex, because you have this, this idea that somehow that is how you follow Christ. Well, that, that is a form of child sacrifice because you're sacrificing the potential for children and this deep biological urge that you have inside you. This is the same sort of thing. It's a sacrifice to Christ. To, to keep, the, uh, keep the family in a sense uh, under the auspices of what is holy. It's a sacrifice of, of you having a family, yeah. putting it off putting in it the off name of Jesus. Um in his service yeah for other people it may be celibacy later in life but there are um, all of us go through periods of celibacy right and again Christianity accounts for this and you can think of this as a kind of sacrifice unto God um, in the category of child sacrifice because it has to do with where family comes from so yeah so um, next week in Isaiah we're going to talk about fasting and it just so happens that next week is also the start of Lent. So I think this uh, the timing is very good here. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else on sacrifice before we move on? We are called to lives of sacrifice. This is what we're called to do. So, you know, in talking about it this way, instead of shying away from child sacrifice and saying, well, this is just pagan and now we're Christian now, I'm, I'm, I want to show how Christ goes down into the heart of the matter and makes it about himself. Because I think that's the, that's the right way to think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. All right. Verse 11. Whom did you dread and fear that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. He's mo- this is mocking. He's being sarcastic. Um, yeah, I'll tell him how righteous you are, but it's not going to make a world of difference. When you, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind, the wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. I mentioned earlier that it's significant that we don't have... Um, any direct stories of Moloch the wind has taken it away (laughs) Uh, you all know what the wind means in both Hebrew and Greek breath, wind it's, it's the same thing we're talking about the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God shall carry these false idols away the Spirit of God shall remove them from our experience that's Pentecost, y'all. That is, that's Pentecost. 
But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Um, we read this verse last week as a sort of summary of this whole section. Um, we focused on the second half of the verse. This week I'm going to focus on the first half. Um, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Um, We've done this once before, but it's been a while, um, and it would be worth doing it again. Uh, Let's talk about the name of Yahweh. Um, You know generally what the name Yahweh means. It means I am who I am, or possibly I will be who I will be. Um, the name of Yahweh in, in, in meaning encompasses all of eternity. The name inhabits eternity because it includes the past, present, and future. I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's all included in the name of Yahweh. And so when it says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that's what it's talking about. Even in just the name, you can see that that's the case that Yahweh inhabits eternity. And you can't, you can't add more meaning to that because everything's accounted for. All right, so I'll go one step deeper, though. Um, so that's the meaning of the name. Let's talk about the form of the name. Um, the name Yahweh is made up of three letters. And um, I already mentioned, and we already talked about, that Hebrew is made up of um, the sort of more uh, the more masculine consonants that are written, that are known, um, that have, you know, boundaries and borders, and this letter does not mean this letter. It's very clear and systematic. You also have the, uh, the vowels, which are unspoken and more mysterious, and in the Hebrew way of thinking, more feminine. The name Yahweh just so happens to take the only three letters in the Hebrew language that have the attributes of both. They're called semi-vowels. They're consonants that function as vowels. So within the name of Yahweh, in both form and function, accounts for the known and the unknown, the spoken and the silent, all of eternity is incorporated into the name, even in just the form of how the name is written. Walton, you got anything to add to that? Because you know Hebrew much better than I do. Exactly. It's all, all of it is incorporated into the name of Yahweh. They're in his image. Um, so what are the three letters? Yeah. Yeah, the English... So, even even within even within the name of Yahweh, just in the form and how it's written, you can see that it's talking about inhabiting all of eternity, and that everything, the seen and the unseen, in the words of the creed, are sourced in Yahweh. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive 
the heart of the contrite. Um, if you add that to what we read earlier in verse 2, where it's talking about the righteous man perishing, and here it's talking about reviving the contrite, that sounds to me like resurrection. What verse is that? Oh, here it is, at 15. Yeah. Um, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint within me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like a tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Um, do you all have anything on that last section? I'd... Uh, it's to me, it's right yeah. here in verse uh... Condescension of God in this kind of high and holy place, but yet yeah. He dwells with the humble and the brokenhearted, and primarily that's, I think, who He likes to people together. You know, I've seen this thing where they're pushing, you know, the sincere Facebook, some of the just the, the name Yahweh, in a sense, compared to our breath, which is, is uh, yeah. 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 yeah, the breath of God is in there. Even as we breathe, and just kind of talks about breath, that, you know, yeah. our very breath is it's it's, it's almost in some ways the primary gift of God. <laughs> uh, going back to verse 13, um, my translation indicates that all the idols is an added word. Yeah, let your collection save you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let your collection deliver you. Yeah. Because that speaks a lot, you know, our culture. Modern culture is all acquiring stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there there is a saying that he who dies with the most toys wins. But you can't take it with you. So I mean, this is this is this modernizes idolatry for us. Yes. Well, eventually we get so much stuff we have to start getting rid of some of it. Anyway. Yeah. Your children hate you. Yeah. Your children hate you. Yeah. 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 They don't want any of it. <laughs> you know, there's a interview. This is years ago. Um, an artist did a. Uh, they took a jar of urine and put a crucifixion in it upside down and oh, it off. The Catholics, as well as a lot of other Christians, went to a circle. It was called the Piss Christ. And, uh, you know, they just. Boycott and wanted to take you know, it on an outrage. It created a worldwide outrage. Really. Uh, but in the, you know, when I got to thinking about it, you know, in, in a sense, that image is quite incarnational. Because here you have God, who is everything, descending into this world which is pissed, which is a filthy yeah. place, 
Yeah. And he's sacrilege, but he's killing himself in it, or allowing himself to die in it. So in some ways, if you see it from a different angle, maybe it's not such a bad piece of art. Because <laughs> yeah. it'll make you think, uh, make you think more about. No, I still think it's pretty awful. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I'm not. <laughs> you haven't convinced me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm just saying it's just a different way of viewing it. I mean, and which, that's what art does. It allows people to view it any way they want. And so, and, um, and so, yeah. I mean, well, it really shows. I, I'm not for it. I promise. You, I'm not saying I'm for that that piece of art. But when I when I really started thinking about it, because of all the outrage, I thought, you know, in some ways, maybe it's more of a symbol of the incarnation, where God limits Himself. Yeah. Sacrifices yeah. himself, he puts himself in this world that is just like a, 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 a yearning. We've uh, we've 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 lost understanding of what art is that we can even call something like that art. We don't yeah we don't even know what art is anymore. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I understand so. that. Yeah. that. That's yeah. the play we're right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else on this last section? Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked don't get to have the same sleep of death that the righteous get. The wicked, when they die, are not reposed. That's, that's the saints. It's a different story for the wicked. Thank you for your attention.